Chapter Thirty One of Brewster's Millions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Brewster's Millions by George Barr McCutcheon. Chapter Thirty One. How the Million Disappeared. Soon after noon on the twenty-second of September, Monty folded his report to Swearengen Jones, stuck it into his pocket, and sallied forth. A parcel delivery wagon had carried off a mysterious bundle a few minutes before. Mrs. Gray could not conceal her wonder, but Brewster's answers to her questions threw little light on the mystery. He could not tell her the big bundle contained the receipts that were to prove his sincerity when the time came to settle with Mister Jones. Brewster had used his own form of receipt for every purchase. The little stub receipt books had been made to order for him, and not only he but every person in his employ carried one everywhere. No matter how trivial the purchase, the person who received a dollar of Brewster's money signed a receipt for the amount. Newsboys and bootblacks were the only beings who escaped the formality. Tips to waiters, porters, cabbies, etc., were recorded and afterward put into a class by themselves. Receipts for the few dollars remaining in his possession. Were to be turned over on the morning of the twenty-third, and the general report was not to be completed until nine o'clock on that day. He kissed Peggy goodbye, told her to be ready for a drive at four o'clock, and then went off to find Joe Bragdon and Alan Gardner. They met him by appointment, and to them he confided his design to be married on the following day. You can't afford it, Monty. Exploded Joe fearlessly. Peggy is too good a girl. By Gad, it isn't fair to her. We have agreed to begin life tomorrow. Wait and see the result. I think it will surprise you. Incidentally, it is up to me to get the license today and to engage a minister's services. It's going to be quiet, you know. Joe, you can be my best man if you like, and Gardy. I'll expect you to sign your name as one of the witnesses. Tomorrow evening we'll have supper at Mrs. Gray's, and among those present will not comprise a very large list, I assure you. But we'll talk about that later on. Just now I want to ask you fellows to lend me enough money to get the license and pay the preacher. I'll return it tomorrow afternoon. Well, I'm damned. Exclaimed Gardner, utterly dumbfounded by the nerve of the man, but they went with him to get the license, and Bragdon paid for it. Gardner promised to have the minister at the Gray House the next morning. Monty's other request, made in deep seriousness, was that Peggy was not to be told of the little transaction in which the license and the minister figured so prominently. He then hurried off to the office of Grant and Ripley. The bundles of receipts had preceded him. Has Jones arrived in town? 
was the first anxious question after the greetings. He is not registered at any of the hotels, responded Mr. Grant, and Brewster did not see the troubled look that passed over his face. He'll show up tonight, I presume, said he, complacently. The lawyers did not tell him that all the telegrams they had sent to Swearage and Jones in the past two weeks had been returned to the New York office as unclaimed in Butte. The telegraph company reported that Mr. Jones was not to be found and that he had not been seen in Butte since the 3rd of September. The lawyers were hourly expecting word from Montana men to whom they had telegraphed for information and advice. They were extremely nervous, but Montgomery Brewster was too eager and excited to notice the fact. A tall bearded stranger was here this morning asking for you, Mr. Brewster, said Ripley, his head bent over some papers on his desk. Ah, Jones, I'm sure. I've always imagined him with a long beard, said Monty, relief in his voice. It was not Mr. Jones. We know Jones quite well. This man was a stranger and refused to give his name. He said he would call at Mrs. Gray's this afternoon. Did he look like a constable or a bill collector? asked Monty with a laugh. He looked very much like a tramp. Well, we'll forget him for the time being, said Monty, drawing the report from his pocket. Would you mind looking over this report, gentlemen? I'd like to know if it is in proper form to present to Mr. Jones. Grant's hand trembled as he took the carefully folded sheet from Brewster. A quick glance of despair passed between the two lawyers. Of course, you'll understand that this report is merely a synopsis of the expenditures. They are classified, however, and the receipts over there are arranged in such a way that Mr. Jones can very easily verify all the figures set out in the report. For instance, where it says cigars, I have put down the total amount that went up in smoke. The receipts are to serve as an itemized statement, you know. Mr. Ripley took the paper from his partner's hand and, pulling himself together, read the report aloud. It was as follows. New York, September 23rd, to Swearage and Jones, Esquire. Executor under the will of the late James T. Sedgwick of Montana. In persuasion of the terms of the aforesaid will, and in accord with the instructions set forth by yourself as executor, I present my report of receipts and disbursements for the year in my life, ending at midnight on September 22nd. The accuracy of the figures set forth in this general statement may be established by referring to the receipts which form a part of this report. There is not one penny of Edward Peter Brewster's money in my possession, and I have no asset to mark its burial place. These figures are submitted for your most careful consideration. Original capital, $1,000,000. Lumber and fuel misfortune, 
58,550. Prize fight misjudged, 1,000. Monte Carlo education, 40,000. Race track errors, 700. Sale of six terrier pups, 150. Sale of furniture and personal effects, 40,500. Interest on funds once in hand, 19,140. Total amount to be disposed of, 1,160,040. Disbursements, rent for apartments, 23,000. Furnishing apartments, 88,372. Three automobiles, 21,000. Renting six automobiles, 25,000. Amount lost to DeMille, 1,000. Salaries, 25,650. Amount paid to men injured in auto accident, 12,240. Amount lost in bank failure, 113,468 and 25 cents. Amount lost on races, 4,000. One glass screen, 3,000. Christmas presents, 7,211. Postage, 1,105. Cable and telegraph, 3,253. Stationery, 2,400. Two Boston Terriers, 600. Amount lost to hold up men, 450. Amount lost on concert tour, 56,382. Amount lost through O'Harrison's speculation, on my account, 60,000. One ball in two sections, 60,000. Extra favours, 6,000. One yacht cruise, 212,309.50. One carnival, 6,824. Cigars, 1,720. Drinks, cheaply for others, 9,040. Clothing, 3,400. Rent of one villa, 20,000. One courier, 500. Dinner parties, 117,900. Suppers and luncheons, 38,000. Theatre parties and suppers, 6,277. Hotel expenses, 61,218 and 59 cents. Railway and steamship fares, 31,274 and 81 cents. For Newsboys Home, 5,000. Two opera performances, 20,000. Repairs to Flitter, 6,342 and 60 cents. In tow from somewhere, 
to Southampton, 50,000. Special train to Florida, 1,000. Cottage in Florida, 5,500. Medical attendance, 3,100. Living expenses in Florida, 8,900. Misappropriation of personal property by servants, 3,580. Taxes on personal property, 112 and 25 cents. Sundries, 9,105. Household expenses, 24,805. Total disbursements, 1,160,040. Balance on hand, zero dollars. Respectfully submitted, Montgomery Brewster. It's rather broad, you see, gentlemen, but there are receipts for every dollar, barring some trifling incidentals. He may think I dissipated the fortune, but I defy him or anyone else to prove that I have not had my money's worth. To tell you the truth, it has seemed like a hundred million. If anyone should tell you that it is an easy matter to waste a million dollars, refer him to me. Last fall I weighed a hundred and eighty pounds. Yesterday I barely moved the beam at a hundred and forty. Last fall there was not a wrinkle in my face, nor did I have a white hair. You see the result of overwork, gentlemen. It will take an age to get back to where I was physically, but I think I can do it with the vacation that begins tomorrow. Incidentally, I'm going to be married tomorrow morning, just when I am poorer than I ever expect to be again. I still have a few dollars to spend, and I must be about it. Tomorrow I will account for what I spend this evening. It is now covered by the sundries item, but I will have the receipts to show, all right? See you tomorrow morning. He was gone, eager to be with Peggy, afraid to discuss his report with the lawyers. Grant and Ripley shook their heads and sat silent for a long time after his departure. We ought to hear something definite before night, said Grant, but there was anxiety in his voice. I wonder, mused Ripley, as if to himself, how he will take it if the worst should happen. End of chapter 31